Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by my, the Watson to my homes, Brandon. A Sherlock reference indeed. How you doing, Tony? I'm guessing, Brandon, that you are a little more um, down with the Benedict Cumberbatch version of Sherlock Holmes. You are 100% correct. Actually, uh, the, I haven't watched the last season of it yet, but uh, the first okay. three, I believe, I watched were phenomenal. Really good stuff. See, I'm guessing you are also the kind of guy who has a very strong opinion about the best Doctor Who. I have I've never seen the show. Oh, okay. I know, I know. I, everybody assumes I have, but I have not seen the show. That just seems all. like right up the yep. nerd alley that you live in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Anything BBC or anything <laughs> like that, I'm totally into, except for that one. That's a little, little right. too weird for me, if if you will. Gotcha. I Are stopped you? watching the BBC um, when they took Benny Hill off. So, like. That's a throwback <laughs> reference that you won't even understand. I get the Benny uh, Hill bit. We've all heard that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I grew up watching that on uh, PBS late at night on Saturday nights. A lonely middle school boy watching. That's that's different for a middle school boy to be watching. That's I don't I don't understand that humor. <laughs> I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Oh, well, how you been, buddy? I've been well. How have you been? Good. Yeah, I was up at the cabin for Labor Day. It was an absolutely gorgeous weekend. I mean, the the it was like this is the time of year you want to live in Minnesota. Is no no bugs. It was about seventy and sunny with a nice breeze. I went duck hunting a few times because it was early teal season. The first time Minnesota's ever had a early teal opener, and I shot one teal. We don't really have a part of the state where. Um, where we have many teal. Sure. And I was hoping to shoot some Canada geese, but that didn't happen. Uh, they didn't, I heard them flying around, but they never came onto our lake. Um, but I have a chance to go Canada goose hunting this weekend. I'm hoping with uh, a new friend of mine who will have on the podcast this fall as well. So I'll leave that a little bit mysterious till we get, actually get a chance to hunt together. And then, get on the podcast to talk about it. So yeah, hunting season is kind of slowly, slowly rolling in. How do you prepare something like teal? Is it different than any other kind of duck or is it just pretty much all in the same lines? Like, you know, well, yeah, a duck, um, the duck really varies in its flavor. And like so many animals, you know, uh, whatever they eat, that's what they taste like. So uh, most people who hunt ducks favor ducks like mallards and teal. They eat things like wild rice. Uh, Wood ducks eat things like wild rice and acorns. Wood ducks are really, really tasty. Teal and mallards are tasty. When you get into the ducks that are divers and eat, you know, like... um, uh, stuff off the bottom of the lake, like they eat snails um, and other stuff they grub off the bottom of the lake. Those are called divers, and and those ducks taste much fishier hmm. and are a bit tougher to make palatable. So when I have ducks like that, same with when I have Canada geese, which you know eat a lot of like golf course grass and. <laughs> often don't taste so good as a result. That's when I'll make sausage or I'll cure it uh, and make pastrami or I will grind it up with pork fat and make meatballs and stuff like that. So you kind of disguise the the flavor of it a little bit. It's but, just substance at a certain point then. Yeah, it's just meat, meat. Um, so the teal, it was, it was my son's 70, 17th birthday on... Saturday, I shot the teal that morning, so I I um, cooked some bacon, and then I really just like I threw the breasts of the teal into the bacon grease and seared it on both sides. It was still cold in the middle, nice and rare, and served it to him for his for breakfast on his birthday with eggs, bacon, and uh, teal breasts. So yeah, and he awesome. he loved it. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing birthday breakfast. That's for sure. Really good. Yeah, man. It's fresh. Yeah, as it well. Did you, That's as fresh as it gets. 
Yeah. Did you uh, do anything else this week besides the cabin? I, I know you went to the state fair. We talked about that last week. You didn't go again. You didn't go for round two or anything like that. I did not. I did not. I know you spent last Wednesday at the fair recording. How'd it go for you? It went very well. It was a lot of fun. We recorded at the Minnesota Bound Cabin, and then I just ended up deciding to take the rest of the day off and staying at the fair with my uh, partner. She uh, had a ticket, awesome. everything like that. So yeah, we just kind of hung out at the fair. Ate, ate some food, not a lot. Didn't go crazy this year. But yeah, it was really good. And did people come and like kind of watch you guys record? Was it was it on the north side of the cabin where those Adirondack chairs are? Yep, that's exactly that where it was. Yeah, we had about a dozen or so uh, people stop by and just kind of check it okay. out. It was a little bit of fun. It was nice to to see some of the fans. And it's for me, I watched Minnesota Bound as a kid, so it's kind of a surreal yeah. experience producing the show and then producing a live show and having people watch it. But it was really cool right. to see the 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 people come up and talk to Laura and Bill about like just how much they've watched Minnesota bound and how it's been a part of their life for like 20 years. It's yeah, it's kind totally of a cool thing to see. Meanwhile, the, the sound of uh chainsaw competition in the background. We uh, actually, we avoided that. We, we, we <laughs> recorded you? right in between the shows and we had, we had a guest. He didn't talk on it, but we had, we watched Suge. Suge walked right in front of the cabin. Suge Emery. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he was performing or anything like that. I think he was just, you know what he ever. does uh, Suge is the MC of the parade oh. every day at, at 2 p.m. Well, that hey, that makes perfect sense. We recorded just before two, so he was probably on his way to get to that. Yeah, so he retired from the juggling act, uh, but yeah, he still is the MC for the parade. And what a great guy! And still, uh, the most downloaded episode of the Reverend Hunter podcast is that correct? That is correct. And yeah, uh, yeah he's he's still releasing his YouTube videos. So if you're listening, uh, check out his YouTube videos. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, Suge Emery. I should have him on again. Well, uh, speaking of podcasts, the guest today on the Reverend Hunter is David Lemire. He is the host of the Wild Huntsman podcast. Uh, he has a voice made for radio. Man, I mean, you'll when you hear this. Everybody, he's got the velvet, the velvet tones of a of a serious podcaster, and he is. He was kind enough to have me. On, I think our podcast launched around the same time. He was kind enough to have me on real early on his run. It's taken me another year to get him on on the Reverend Hunter. Um, but his podcast, The Wild Huntsman, is fantastic. You can find it in the link in the show notes. Uh, I would if you look, if you like the Reverend Hunter, you will like his podcast. He talks to people about the deeper issues of hunting. He talks to a lot of writers who've really reflected deeply on, on hunting and stuff like that. We, we talk about that a little bit in our conversation. He stays away from some of the stuff about gear reviews and the how to's and the pragmatics of hunting, even though he's a very serious and accomplished hunter. Um, that's not only not what his podcast about, and that's not really what animates him. He, he's much more like me into the existential themes of hunting. So we have a great conversation. I think you will love it. I really appreciate you listening. And as always would encourage you to subscribe rate, review, like, and share the Reverend Hunter podcast. We do really appreciate it when you do that. Every Honestly, every review on Apple Podcasts helps because it does uh, spread the word and it, it, you know, it, it, it moves us up in the algorithm so that people who listen to other similar podcasts will get this one recommended to them. So we'd love it if you did that. Thank you for doing that. And mainly thank you for listening. And uh, so here we go. My conversation with the host of The Wild Huntsman, David Lemire. Hey, David, The Wild Huntsman. Thanks for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast, buddy. Tony, it's such an honor. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate I mean, it. We'll see if it's an honor. Let's just see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> see if you drag me across the coals here. Um, so... Why can't we talk about your job? I know we can't. I'm not, so I'm not asking you to talk about it, but I'm asking you why we can't. Sure. It sounds a lot more interesting than it actually is. <laughs> but my agency uh, that I work for, uh, I spoke with the ethics department before starting a podcast and said, how can I do this ethically without, you know, 
So, so we can already anything. narrow it down that you work somewhere that has an ethics department because most <laughs> of us do not work at places that have ethics departments. Yeah, demonstrably, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I work, uh, I've, I've had 20 plus years of conservation law enforcement, Tony. And uh-huh. I think the only danger is the idea that if people are listening to me, the only ethical conundrum is that I don't speak for my agency. And all right. Yeah. That my opinions are not their policy. So, or or not the policy of the agency. So it's, uh, again, not as interesting as it sounds when you say I can't speak about my job. It's, (laughs) it's a, it's a pretty routine job and a pretty routine thing I do, but you know, I've been happy with it and blessed to do it and, uh, you know, happy to not talk about it if they'd prefer. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm just starting a job uh, as a pastor on a church staff, which I haven't done since 2003. Um, And I have been thinking about things like, um, I'm not a big like uh, political yard sign guy, but I remember back when I was a pastor, the last time I made a deliberate choice not to... Of course, I could never endorse a candidate from the pulpit because it's actually illegal to do that. You could lose the nonprofit status of the church. But um, I didn't even put a lot, you know, yard signs out for candidates. I feel, you know, I was in my late 20s, early 30s at the time. And now that I'm in my 50s, I'm kind of like, I'm sure that people in the church I'm going to serve know that I have opinions. Yeah. You know, and know that I lean one direction politically. Um, obviously, social media has changed all that. Are you the same on social media? Like, do you stay off of social or do you not? I mean, your 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 Instagram feed is fascinating because it's mainly vintage pictures. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't even know. I want to get into that and find out even where you do that. But are you yeah. uh, are you on other in your role? Do you stay off of Facebook and Twitter and not? you know, rant about politics. Yeah. I, I definitely avoid that. And it's, it's not so much, uh, uh, professional or it's not strategic, Tony, so much as, uh, it makes me feel sick (laughs) engaging with these people, a little, uh, queasy, uh, engaging with folks via social media where we don't know each other, uh, can't have that human connection. And just how uh, petty and dismissive and ugly we can be in that setting. So, no, I don't do it. I recently started a Facebook account to track down an author that I want to talk to on the Hmm. podcast. I wanted to talk to Jim Fergus, and somebody said, he has a Facebook account. Just find him there. And I signed up for Facebook. I was on it for a day and a half. And when I deleted it, it it was like I was fleeing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah it was it was a place i didn't want to be and and i understand there's a lot of benefits to it right and people connectivity between people but i think i only engage social media in order to um keep the idea of the podcast fresh in people's minds and i do that poorly i'm, I'm not yeah. a good instagrammer no because you're not really you're not really promoting your brand I mean, I think your Instagram feed is really fascinating because of the vintage photos you pick. But yeah, I mean, that's the, I, I would flee from Facebook in a heartbeat if I could, but yeah. I use it to tell, let people know I've got a new podcast episode or I've got a book coming out or whatever, yeah. you know, and there's obviously a couple billion people on that platform. So yeah. And it works well. I know that when uh, one of my guests or a listener put something up on Twitter about the podcast or on Facebook about the podcast. I know that my downloads reflect that. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's an effective tool. It, yeah. But it's a Faustian to it. bargain too, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, okay. Tell me this. What have you learned it, again, without revealing what you do, you know, 20 years <laughs> in conservation <laughs> law enforcement, you must have learned a great deal about, has that, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is 
that role that you have, that job you have, that must be part of the inspiration that led you to launch the Wild Huntsman podcast. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. that's. Uh, I hadn't thought of it that way, Tony. I, I think that it's part of who I am is I became uh, a law enforcement officer in the field of conservation law enforcement based on my passion for the outdoors and in particular okay. my passion for hunting. And this uh, podcast comes about from that same, it's the same drive because I don't just want to do it when I'm doing it. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm reading about it. I'm planning for it. I'm prepping for it. I'm doing something. So it was real lucky and beneficial to me to be able to work in the outdoors. I'm not sure I would have succeeded to this level um, had I stayed in the private sector working an office job wearing a tie. Mm -hmm. I, tr I tried that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that didn't yeah. stick. Oh, that was, that was terrible. That was, yeah. I was having an existential crisis three months in. Mm-hmm. The fluorescent lights. Yeah. That that stuff will kill you. Um <laughs> did have you have you gotten cynical because in in your law enforcement life? Because um I was a police chaplain in my town for ten years and spent a lot of hours. I was required to do four hours of ride along uh every month. And so I rode along with a lot of different cops, you know, and it, it's, that's a tough job, man. And I, i I ran into a lot of cops who were really cynical, tired, burned out. And it's also not a career that unless you're advancing in it and you know, there's, you run into the men and women in law enforcement who they want to become a sergeant, then a lieutenant, then assistant chief, then chief, you know, like they're climbing the ladder, but that's not the majority. Like in any organization, the majority of people are kind of get to the level that they're at and then they stay there for a long time. And those people struggled. I saw them struggling um, to maintain any kind of equanimity about the job uh, without turning cynical. Yeah. And just being in law enforcement in general in our country right now must be a somewhat, somewhat touchy thing. Yeah. Difficult times, right? And yes, the, the, uh, you're correct. It's challenging to remain uh, optimistic, positive, you know, in the job of law enforcement, dealing with the worst. Mm -hmm. Everyone that you deal with, it's the worst day that they've had, at least in a long time, and for the most part. But I think I went into it uh, fairly grounded, I think, in faith. And hmm. I think I, I know I've dipped into, um, cynicism and negativity based largely. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of challenges as you say, and it's difficult, but I think that particularly in the, uh, we mentioned, I have a little over 20 years in now, and now as I'm getting towards the end of my career, coming up on mandatory retirement in uh, the next five years. I'll, uh, I've definitely come out on the other side of any cynicism or hmm. difficulties. And I think it's, uh, because yeah, it's tough to be, uh, a cop and yeah. be a good dad, a good husband, a good neighbor, a good, you know, it's tough yeah. to be, um, uh, a force for good or positivity and, Mm -hmm. be the person that, that polices an area. So yeah, there are challenges. I think I'm doing okay with them. Good. Yeah. Well, when you, after you retire, I'd love to have you back on and talk about, you know, tell us some crazy hair raising stories. Cause I'm sure with two decades in, you've, you've had some of those. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, do you, do you ever play hearts, the game of hearts? <laughs> no. The Should card I? game? No. I mean it's a great game. It's a great game, but it's like um you can't uh you can't lead with a heart until somebody else breaks hearts or breaks the suit. Um mm -hmm. so somebody else has to play a heart before you can lead 
your hand with a heart. And so you just said faith. So I feel like you open, oh, 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 you know, you, you allowed me now because you broke hearts. You yeah, allowed me course. to a- go ahead and ask you about that. No, of um, course. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, you you know what I'm about because I've been on your podcast before. Um, no. Yeah, tell me about your, your faith background and how, I mean, first of all, I'd love to hear generally where you live. You, you just mentioned being married and having kids, like, what's what's your life situation and then also you know talk about kind of your your faith situation because i i take it by listening to your podcast seeing the stuff you post a, a lot of times which references stuff you're reading which is a lot of the similar kind of stuff i read but i'll be honest neither you nor i uh are reading the kind the books that you would guess that like Christian hunters are reading. Yeah. You know what I'm saying about yeah. that? No, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. I don't think we are. They yeah. I'm uh I'm in upstate New York now and this is I don't know, maybe my fourth duty station and it's great. And it's a, a wonderful place to be. And this is the first time I've been in an area where I felt like I'm going to be here for a few years and not move. Hmm. And this is the place that, you know, my wife took a job at the local college. She's uh She's a theater scholar and mm. she teaches right down the street and the kids are, you know, in a nice school system. So it's wonderful. You know, you have all of those, um, sort of benefits of stability that mean so much if you, if you had a, a life where you move around a little bit and, uh, I'm not used to the suburbs. I never will be. I don't care about grass. I, I think, uh. <laughs> I think it diminishes me as a human being every time I start my lawnmower and wave to my neighbor, but yeah, small price to pay, I think. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, my faith background, I was born and raised in Massachusetts in Quincy and then Weymouth, Massachusetts, just south of Hmm. Boston. And uh, culturally Catholic, Roman Catholic. Okay. Upbringing in an area that was predominantly uh, Catholic, and it was uh, it was a good sort of start. It was a, a good grounding. Um, a, a child's faith could be nurtured in that scenario. I came up after you know I, I spoke to you about my preference for last time we talked uh, when you were a guest on my podcast. We talked about my preference for high mass. Um, mm-hmm. My my uh, discomfort with the fruits of the Second Vatican Council and <laughs> the uh, casually dressed nuns and uh, acoustic guitars. You want the and priest such. with his back to you talking yes. in Latin. I want Latin. I want his back to me. And listen, I don't <laughs> think that's better. I just think that's where that's where I worship effectively. I understand gotcha. that, that there were a lot of positives that came, but for me, yeah, I want a I want a priest in a dress swinging the purse on fire, <laughs> the ball of incense. I want the Person. you know. I think it's called a cha- chalice. Chalice, yeah. what's it called it's not the crucible anyways i shouldn't be i shouldn't be spitballing it live on the air (laughs) chasuble i know i know that the old joke is uh when you see it and the incense coming in and being swung is the uh the old joke is that's a nice dress father but your purse is on fire so that's that's as much as I know. Oh my god. I have never heard that before. I love yeah. that so much. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The chasuble yeah. is the dress. That's my bad. Okay. That's the, okay. That's the okay. dress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I grew up with that. I, I uh left the Roman Catholic Church, as uh so many folks do, and uh searched and saw it. And when I met my wife, um, she was the granddaughter of two pastors in the Nazarene church. And so, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh that led me to, uh, going into college. When I was going into college, I went to Eastern Nazarene college in Quincy and spent some time 
uh, in, but not of, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the evangelical Christianity mm-hmm. and, and met a lot of great people there. And I don't know, Tony, if I'm just a classic American or if I'm a particularly difficult person, but I, I didn't, um, I also didn't find a home there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, I may have been, uh, spoiled with the drama and theater of, you know, the Catholic church as a kid, but also the, um, the evangelical Christianity, uh, just wasn't appealing to me on a intellectual, spiritual level. So, uh, I continued on. I, I, I got a lot of good grounding in Christian tradition and history and philosophy at that school and was really blessed in that way. And okay. they sort of, uh, I was trained as a critical thinker there and they, they really helped me hone that. And so mm-hmm. it was wonderful to go to school there. And, uh, my wife and I go to, and kids go to a non-denominational church now and you know, we split the baby. <laughs> we, <laughs> we're down the road at the big church where, you know, they play that uh, Christian contemporary music. Praise that, and worship music, baby. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And that's good. <laughs> that's a my, lot. Yeah. My background and my, my church background leads me to see value in penance. And I think sitting through that music is... <laughs> An act of penance. (laughs) I smile. I'm supportive, and inside, I'm I'm just dying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's. I guess if you're a Catholic, maybe. um, Although you know the Vatican no longer teaches it, but you might still hang on to that idea of purgatory, and that you're you know in a process (laughs) of being shriven of your <laughs> earthly sins and being prepared for yeah. eternity. Yeah. Right. It's uh it's a purifying fire of that real loud drum, <laughs> that, that, uh, whatever that style of music is. I, I don't want to insult it, whatever that is. Yeah. Uh, it's not it's, my, it's not my favorite either. Yeah. It, but so many folks are just really, uh, enjoying it. And I think it really, um, aids in the worship of, of a particular group of folks. So, you know, for that yeah. alone, I'm happy to, you know, yeah. sit through it. <laughs> Try well, just to, it. just to close the loop, the, uh, the burning purse is called a thurible. A thurible. That sounds familiar. I'm sure I heard that. <laughs> you probably learned point. it in confirmation class or yeah, something of like course. that way back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I, I Tell made me, it through my um, confirmation. Tell me about this, and then we can back up and talk about your your you know your youth as a outdoors boy, hunting and fishing. But tell me about this book, a sportsman's sketchbook, because it's not one I'm familiar with, but I know it had a a pivotal, it played a pivotal role in your understanding of the outdoors. Sure. So I graduated college. I had the existential crisis that one can have uh, graduating college where I said to myself, dear God, I'm graduating college and I don't know anything. I don't, (laughs) I haven't read any of the classics that you're supposed to read. I'm, I'm completely ignorant of much of the world and I'm graduating college. And uh, I didn't expect to have that feeling, right? That that catches us by surprise when we do, but I did have that feeling. So as soon as I graduated, I like printed off a copy of, you know, the hundred important books that you're supposed to read in the Western canon. Mm-hmm. And I decided to uh, include the Russians and I did that. And uh, I spent that first summer starting with the Russians and, oh Lord, that was a heavy slog. Oh boy. Depressing yeah. and, and heavy and dark. But Turgenev, uh, Fathers and Sons was, was definitely eye-opening, but he had written a book and depending on the translation, a sportsman's, uh, notebook, sportsman's sketchbook, it's, um, I read it and I, uh, saw what 
hunting literature could be. And that was that it, it was very little about the hunting. There was, there was a descriptor of the hunting. I went to so-and-so's land to hunt. And this is in Tsarist Russia, 19th century Mm -hmm. Tsarist Russia. But then he would talk about the serfs and the people that he met. And it was a lot of Mm -hmm. character sketches more than anything else. And so I read the book. I thought, does anyone else know that this is a wonderful book? And it turns out that most of the world knew that. And and I was discovering it, you know, a hundred years after everyone else. But it was so impactful that it's credited with, uh, in part, changing the mind of the czar on how to treat the serfs and on the freeing of the serfs in czarist Russia. So this book that, that it's a light, easy read and has so many layers of depth to it and such humanity to it that it changed the course of world history. If you don't free the serfs, the, the revolution doesn't occur. If the, you know, on down the line, the dominoes. So that, uh, that changed my approach to how I looked at hunting literature and on what it could mean. And that, and then of course, Faulkner after that mm-hmm. changed, changed my ideas on what hunting literature was. And I had always, I'd grown up reading the hunting magazines. I'd grown up reading whatever hunting book I could get, but never, uh, realized that there was something beyond the me and Joe or the, the, simple enjoyment I was getting out of it, vicarious sort of hunting trip enjoyment. Um, what do you think it is about that literature of, of, of hunting, a, a book that, that profound being so rare? This is what I wonder. Because hunting is such um, a, a primordial part of who we are. And I know that only whatever, two or 3% of Americans today hunt, but that wasn't the case a hundred or 200 or 500 years ago, but there's, there isn't a very rich literature of hunting. Have you, have you considered why that might be? Do you have any ideas about that? No, I, I haven't Tony, but I have, uh, I did notice, or that did open my eyes to more depth in some of our simple, uh, some of our more simple writers, you know, that, that opened my eyes to seeing the importance in a Gordon McQuarrie and a Gene mm. Hill, uh, you know, reading, uh, the old man and the boy Ruark and seeing that this, uh, was deeper than that first surface reading was. So yeah, I don't know why there's not more about it other than, um, no, I guess I just don't know. But that's an interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> I recently read um, the novel Deliverance. And I've of cor- I had, of course, seen the film, you know, years ago. Um, but a, a friend of mine said, have you ever read Deliverance? You should read it. It's got the best written hunting scenes I've ever read. And this is from a non-hunter. Hmm. Um, and I read it and was at, I mean it's now in my top 5 novels of all time list you know it's it's just it's really an astounding as good as the film is that the the book is 10 times better but it it's just interesting how rarely we find uh well written hunting scenes in fiction and we don't really see many in film either. And it's just, it, it's something that I have been wondering about, especially because I've been doing quite a bit of writing of hunting scenes and trying to make them come to life. Um, and one of the tricky things has been for me to write in such a way that non-hunters will appreciate what I'm saying you know, how I'm telling this tale, but it's pretty gruesome, obviously, because hunting involves a lot of blood and, and death and even unfortunately sometimes suffering, uh, of an animal. Um, so anyway, I don't really have a question there other than, you you know, you're well read 
And I wonder if you've got any thoughts on what constitutes, uh, you know, a well-written hunting scene or a well-written book that includes hunting. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Hemingway did it well and did it right mm-hmm. sparsely with that that style that changed literature for for decades. Yeah. But uh, Faulkner did it well in a completely, you know, stream of consciousness, almost poetic style. Mm-hmm. I know, Tony, when you said uh, something that rings true for even non-hunters, I it hit me that. I can't explain to non-hunters the beauty of hunting. I just haven't been able to successfully do it. I can, I can say the words and say what mm-hmm. it means to me. But if I'm speaking to a hunter about that same thing, I know I can, I know that we're speaking beyond the words that if we've both experienced it and the beauty and the, the drama and the, the visceral nature. And like you said, that primal, feeling i i haven't been able to and if, if you're able to pull that off tony i'm gonna i'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna look I, forward to that i mean i i i just paid an editor to read read it and she got back to me with all sorts of notes and one of her questions to me honestly david was who is this book for because in the, some ways it's a spiritual memoir and the people your your potential readers are people who love spiritual memoir. On mm. the other hand, it's for people who hunt and fish, because there's just a lot of, you know, well written scenes of of particularly of hunting. And of course, my response was, "Why can't I have them both? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Why can't yeah. I have both sets of readers? Yeah. Then I'd yeah. sell twice as many books." Um, yeah. But it's yeah. tricky. It's very tricky. Well, you say that, and I wonder if that's what makes Turgenev's work so mm. enduring. And so, you know, you can pick up the most recent translation, read it, and no problem. There's no disconnect. As as many books written, you know, 100 years ago, there'd be a, a big gulf between yeah. you and it. Yeah. It takes, takes a little bit of stretching for you to approach that material. Not so mm. with this book, and I wonder if it's because he he doesn't talk that much about the hunting. It's yeah. just about the people and the characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you know you're you're a like me. You are a multi-species hunter, a generalist. Um, my, my I, at least at this point in my life. My favorite type of hunting, the type of hunting that I fantasize about, daydream about in the off season, prepare for, is pheasant hunting. I think for you, it's waterfowling is your is your kind of cornerstone hunting. Yeah, I, I'm gonna our our uh, early Canada goose season opens tomorrow. We're recording. You and I are having this conversation on Friday, September third, and tomorrow morning. Oh. Um, I will be out trying to shoot a Canada goose or two. Um, <laughs> in a field or in water? I'm going to be in water this weekend Good. and in a field next weekend. All right. You know? You're mixing it up. Yeah. I don't, you know what? I only have, uh, I'm not a big goose hunter. I don't have field decoys and no. I definitely don't have, you know, a five by eight trailer with 500 field decoys. <laughs> How do we get to this point where that's what we need? David, it's, it's crazy. I was listening to one of your uh, podcasts recently where, you know, your guest was talking about how he grew up goose hunting with his dad and they'd put out five or 10 handmade yeah. goose decoys. And now he yeah. goes out and puts out a thousand. And, yeah. you know, I've been duck hunting several times in North Dakota and I'm a duck hunter, so I'm hunting over water, but wow. I see these guys with these huge trailers and they're full of thousands of Canada goose or snow goose decoys, Yeah. plus the flags, plus the layout blinds. And it's really something that, uh, you know, it, w- it would be a fascinating way to hunt. It'd be a massive type of investment. Of and I'm guessing those guys who do that kind of hunting 
hunt almost exclusively that stuff because you couldn't be geared up for that kind of hunting and then unless you're a guide and then yeah. also do a bunch of other types of hunting but um yeah. or unless unless you're extremely wealthy and have no job um <laughs> but back to uh yeah so anyway I'll, I'll i'll put out my six goose decoys at a spot nice. in our lake where our lake cabin is where i know that the geese tend yeah. to land and eat yeah. wild rice um nice. And the thing about geese is, you know, unlike ducks, it's not like they fly at dawn and dusk and that's it. Like, yeah, you never, at least around here, you never know yeah. when they're going to come in there. You can't really pattern them. Yeah. That's great. So it, it just means I have to sit out there all day. <laughs> of um, course. <laughs> it's a good, good excuse to sit out there all day is that's what I'm true. hearing. I got some cigars and my dog will be out there with me, so I'll be fine. Yeah. Um. Tell me about waterfowling. What what is it about duck and goose hunting that you love so much? Yeah, I think that I've always been drawn to the water. When I was a kid, uh, before I could hunt, and you know, grew up with a single mom, urban suburban sort of upbringing, and no access to hunting, but there was always water. And I grew mm-hmm. up near the coast, so there was always the ocean. I grew up uh, with a lot of freshwater ponds and rivers around. So there was always that option. I've always been drawn to the water. So, uh, I think the simplest answer is that I'm mixing my love of marshes and swamps and dawn on a river with hunting. And Mm -hmm. beyond that, it's, um, there's a, there's a magic to, uh, such a ridiculous overblown event as a waterfowl migration Mm. and that it's just to participate in that is, (laughs) is, is wonderful. So yes, I'll hunt the resident, uh, ducks and geese all day, but to be out there in a November and the migration working as I had hoped it would or a December and that same thing. And it's, uh, it's amazing just to be a part of that migration and that, and of course, ducks and geese are good to eat and, mm-hmm. um, probably not what drew me to it originally, but certainly something I've come to appreciate later as table fare. And my son who's 15, um, that generational change is that he thinks about how he's going to prepare the food for the family as we're preparing for the hunt and he's all about that. So Hmm. I'm learning from him. (laughs) I'm teaching him the ins and outs of how to do the hunting and he's telling me how to cook them. (laughs) So it's good. Awesome. It's good. Tell me about where you, where you and he hunt. What's it, what's the, bring us there. Um, bring, bring us as listeners there sitting in the blind with you. Yeah, I'm just um I'm just adjusting to this area. So, I didn't grow up here. I didn't spend enough time here um to get a sense of migration until this last these last 2 years. So, I'm watching how the birds move and where they are around here. It's mostly um big lake up way up north and the marshy bottoms of that big lake um it's a lot of cattail, a lot of slow moving water. You know, it's a warm water type of an area in that marsh area. And it's just verdant with, um, you know, birds and wildlife. And it's, it's amazing just to be in there. You know, we're going to go out in a 14 foot, uh, Radisson square stern canoe with a little outboard on it and just have a wonderful, (laughs) wonderful fall. For, I've done a little bit of hunting like that up in Lake of the Woods in Ontario. Um, so do you get up, you're up and out the door well before dawn and in your boat going with, by headlamps. Exactly. Through a marsh. Yeah, Exactly. Have you got exactly. a dog in, in, in the boat with you? I don't. I just had a, a lengthy discussion uh, with uh, 
a recent guest and buddy, um, that I have never been settled in an area enough to train a retriever. Hmm. So my thinking about the only thing worse than waterfall hunting without a dog is waterfowling with a poorly trained dog. Mm. And I grew up mostly, uh, not even grew up as a young man, I got to hunt, uh, with some folks. There were some, a lot of Chesapeake Bay retrievers, a few labs, a few goldens, yeah. um, and rare was the steady dog that I hunted with back then. And that was, yeah, you know, 30 years ago. So, uh, I never had any interest in doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I do have a hunting dog, but she's a, uh, she's a primitive dog breed of West Siberian Laika who I mostly hunt squirrel with. Oh, okay. And she trees them. No, I, I, I have a, uh, a crazed dog running around the Adirondacks chasing every, she'll hunt almost anything, but, uh, we break her every wow. year from hunting deer obviously that's bad <laughs> yeah and uh and she chase she has a wonderful time chasing squirrel she's uh you know at this point i could say almost uh routinely treeing bobcat and she'll be chasing the ermine up here and hmm. it's uh it's a great sort of if you haven't been to the adirondacks it's six million acres in the park two million of wilderness and it's right up a sort of a butts and the boreal shield comes down into the very top of it in just a little mm-hmm. area. So it's this wonderful, uh, area to hunt where it's, uh, you know, true Northern wilderness hunting and, uh, you know, a day's drive from a lot of metropolitan areas. So mm-hmm. it's great to have. Um, yeah, I I know what you're saying about dogs that are not steady. My last lab was so high strung around the hunt that yeah, he he really struggled in a duck blind. He he was much more made for the upland hunt, um, the grouse hunt or whatever, the pheasant hunt, because he would just sh- kind of shiver and whine in a in a blind. Yeah. So yeah. if we were in a big built blind on the edge of a lake or a slough or something, it was fine because you could hide him in there and whatever. But yeah, I, I struggled with him when it was just like, let's just duck down in some cattails here and wait for some ducks to come in because he was so, so excited about the hunt. And my current yeah. dog is much more mellow. Like he'll, tomorrow when we're goose hunting, he will just curl up at my feet and fall asleep. And when the gun goes off, then he'll be ready to go make a retrieve or whatever. Um, but he's just a different dog, you know? So I do know what you're talking about, about having a, and especially if you're hunting out of a canoe, man, you do not want a jumpy dog. No, no. Uh, I don't know. Those Radisson canoes are pretty stable. I don't know if you see them. Yeah. They're, they're almost as wide as they are long. There is, this thing's a little over 36 inches of beam and. It's uh it's got the foam sponsons on the side and okay. tough tough to tip over. Yeah, you know, I have looked at those before online and I that's good to hear because inevitably, I mean, you run into this in your line of work, I'm sure, but I tell people a lot. I I think duck hunting's more dangerous than pheasant hunting because you know, every time you tell somebody you pheasant hunt a non-hunter, the first thing they talk about is Dick Cheney course <laughs> every time every time he made he made it tough on the upland bird hunters for a while I yeah think. jackass but anyway <laughs> um he yeah he did yep. but really it's you know when i read the outdoor news and and follow the the co reports it's a lot of duck hunters man uh who you know two guys stand up in a boat at the same time one slips and shoots and kills his friend yeah. uh and that doesn't happen so much in pheasant hunting because you just tend to be more spread out and stuff like that but not yeah. at such and close quarters as a duck hunt going out into the waters and you know yeah traditionally duck boats are 
16 foot or less in my experience there are, there are definitely big ones but and particularly for sea duck but going out into the water in cold harsh windy mm-hmm. conditions is dangerous and needs yeah. to be taken seriously so yeah yeah i i have uh i have uh learned my lesson the hard way i've swum a couple uh, What's the past? I've swam. I've swam a couple yeah, times. Yeah, swam. Yeah, swam. Swam. Okay. Yeah. I swam. I swam uh, in my uh, waders and. Is that uh, right? Oh yeah, yeah. In waders. Yeah, in the northeast. Those are turning into the, those turn into anchors pretty fast when you go I, in the water. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, Tony. If you don't panic, <laughs> and if you wear a yeah. wader belt. Okay. Uh, so I've always worn a waiter belt, but if you don't panic, so it's going to reach mutual buoyancy when it fills okay. with water. It's not going to get heavier than the water. It's filling with True. water. Right. Right. The uh, problem is that, of course, the um, the thermal shock of hitting the water takes your breath away. Mm-hmm. When you lose your breath, then you start to panic. And I was always just too stupid to panic the, the couple times I've, I've swam. So <laughs> I don't know about too stupid, too experienced probably just because you've been around it for a long time. No, but. I was just young. That was in my youth. Yeah. I, I oh. flipped a canoe in a swamp uh, on a river and might have been December. There was snow on the ground. and near You know, I definitely went hypothermic because when I dumped the canoe on a new sandbar, went over sideways. I couldn't afford another shotgun. My Mossberg 500 shotgun went to the bottom and it was a little over my head. So I had to dive for it. I didn't have to. Oh my gosh. I didn't have to. I thought it was a good idea to dive for it. And I (laughs) did do that. And by the time I got back to the truck, I couldn't operate the key to open the door. I had to use two hands. It took me like, you know, 10 minutes just to get in the truck. Dang. Yeah, so it's dangerous. It yeah. is dangerous. Mm. Um, well, I, I do want to talk to you about your podcast, which I find fascinating because I think, like, like mine, it's not your run-of-the-mill hunting podcast. No, yours no, it kind of takes the whole hunting conversation in a very different direction. And I'm just wondering, you know, I've talked on this podcast before about the outdoors media landscape and that I don't really feel like I fit in it and I don't really like it. I don't really consume it myself, Yeah, especially the TV shows. But uh, I think a lot of the podcasts that come out of the big, you know, those same big hunting outfits are very similar to the TV shows. And it's a lot of how to. It's a lot of stories of how you shot the biggest buck you've ever shot, and then the next year you shot an even bigger buck. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's a lot of stories about stuff that normal guys like you and I couldn't ever do because uh, <laughs> we don't have the money or the connections or whatever. Sure. You know, my podcast is not about that, and neither is yours. So what was the inspiration for you to start it and then what have you been learning along the way as it, as you've been doing it? How has it evolved? Sure. Thanks for the kind words. And it speaks to your character, Tony, that you don't fit into that landscape. That's a, that's, <laughs> thank you. That's a, that's a pretty challenging landscape. Someone, uh, yeah. I went to the backcountry hunters and anglers muster in the mountains rendezvous, um, mm-hmm. a month or two ago. And someone was referring to one of the shows that that fit into your description as yeah i stopped listening it came across as real broy real you know and i uh, think i know exactly the podcast or whatever (laughs) sure (laughs) and i thought yeah okay it's the same place where you tell listeners to send all their complaints about your podcast (laughs) sometimes (laughs) sometimes that yeah, that's that's uh, my more cynical. That's my favorite side. line of your podcast, by the oh. way. I, 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 the other day, I laughed out loud at the gym when oh, I you. was lifting and I was listening. And yeah, you said, and you know, tell me if you want to see, and if you have any complaints and don't th- you know think my podcast could be better, send them to themeateater.com. <laughs> <laughs> I think. That was awesome. Listen, 
the, that's a very popular podcast and they're doing great. So, you know, and they're, they're a bit broy. <laughs> they've been described as broy and they're, they're, uh, but they're, they're meeting, uh, a, a need or an appetite, I should say, not, yeah, not a for need. sure. So they're meeting an appetite and that's fine. Uh, I'll never hit the numbers that they're hitting. I, I've recently been, uh, amusing my children with my podcast numbers in Latvia when I <laughs> I'm like I'm number three in Latvia I don't know if we need to I don't know if we need to have a trip over there or what we need to do but I made it up to number three and uh you know I'm sure no one there cares where they're doing in Latvia they, they're doing just fine yeah but yeah uh I went down a rabbit hole and I I was thinking about hunting literature as we talked about and hunting stories and i was explaining i think maybe to my wife i was explaining to someone that sharing the story of the hunt is an important part of the hunt so telling people that you respect admire like to talk to that are in my case going to be fellow hunters about that hunt that you went on And it doesn't have to be, I shot the biggest buck. It can be, you know, I nearly fell out of the tree stand and, you know, or, you know, whatever. I sipped my waders crossing this river and froze for the rest of the day. Whatever the reality is of that, it was important for me to share. And then going down that rabbit hole, you mentioned the primal or primordial uh, aspect of hunting. And right along with that, in our earliest art and in our formation of language as we evolved it's hunting is there and Mm -hmm. it's we're sharing our ideas on what hunting means and you know what it means spiritually what it means uh to get that food what it means to see that beast and your buddy's great um performance on that hunt and just how important that was and i started uh getting a little bit melancholy that I wasn't going to ever get a chance to talk to Hmm. any of these uh, people who had affected me with their hunting stories. And these are people like I mentioned, Gordon McCory. He wrote the stories of the old duck hunters. Um, Brilliant writer that people don't know about because he never wrote his novel. He wrote, Mm. he was probably the first full-time outdoor column writer for the Milwaukee journal, I believe. And he would write for magazines and he'd write for the Milwaukee journal. And someone compiled at some point his stories about him and his father-in-law duck hunting stories of the old duck hunters. It's beautiful. And I, and I thought to myself, I'll never get to talk to him. I'll never get to talk to Gene Hill. Although, you know, Mm -hmm. Gene Hill purportedly only did it as a tax uh, shelter to cover his buying shotguns. <laughs> <laughs> he, he worked as an ad man through his, throughout his entire life. He never, no I don't think ever just went over to outdoor, right? But, uh, so he might not have wanted to talk to me anyways, but I started thinking of that and I thought, well, all right, I, I can talk to these people, but what I can through starting a podcast, it's easy, right? You and I did it. Uh, it's something you can do. But what would I talk to them about? And then it just, like you mentioned, I'm not that interested. I'll talk gear all day, Tony. If you want to, ha- if you want to stop recording and we'll talk boots, <laughs> I'm on for another couple hours. I can right? talk boots with you. <laughs> I can talk rifles. I, I go down horrible rabbit holes of ballistics and all that stuff. I, I'll talk about all that stuff, but it's not the important stuff to me, right? It's hmm. frivolous, right? Because Gordon McQuarrie didn't care about any of that stuff, and he did just fine. And, you know, there's a lot of predecessors to us who didn't hunt with the latest name brand, merino wool, latest camo pattern stuff that did just fine. They did great. Mm -hmm. And so I know it's not the important stuff. And so I tried to get to the important stuff without without being self-important, without look at me, I'm talking about the important stuff, but by talking to experts in their fields and 
insightful, interesting people about the parts of hunting that interest me. And it's worked mm-hmm. out pretty good so far. I've been, I've been blessed. The, the guests that have been willing to come on are, uh, are, it astounds me. You know, yeah. every, every time I get to talk to someone new, I'm like, this is wonderful. And I'm very grateful to them <laughs> for taking their time to talk yeah. to me. What, what themes have emerged as you've, as you've talked to these people, you know, who've you, you've used the podcast and the excuse to have great conversations with people. Are there, are there themes that you've seen pop up in multiple guests that have given you more insight into the practice of hunting? Maybe not the practice, but maybe the, um, the experience, maybe the, what hunting is to us right now. And one of the aspects that seems to recur is community and relationship. Hmm. And it can be within a family, someone talking about their father or their older brother or their uncle and what it meant uh, to be invited to that first hunt or to uh, tell the story of that hunt when their father came to pick them up. They were sitting on the log all day and they shot a buck, a small buck, and how they were bursting to just see their father come through the woods so they could tell them that they shot the buck. It's that there's a relation, there's a relational aspect that particularly men, we have a hard time expressing feelings in a large sense, in a general sense. Mm -hmm. And we have a hard time expressing real love and enjoyment and descriptions of beauty particularly my generation and older, uh, kids are better at it. They're, uh, this generation is much better at everything at life <laughs> than we were, but it breaks down walls. If you can stand, if you can sit shoulder to shoulder in a duck blind with someone, you're going to experience beauty. You're going to talk about probably something more important than, you know, whatever the sports scores were or, you know, the news of the day, you're mm-hmm. going to experience something. And so community building and relationship, I would think are the two themes that I didn't anticipate that seem to recur. Hmm. That's fantastic. Uh, I, I really, I'm, it's, those are spiritual types of terms, you know, community and relationship. Um, that's what, for instance, the Christian faith is supposed to be about that kind of fellowship and connection with, with the divine and with other human beings. So if people, I mean, I found, I found that in hunting. I sometimes wonder if I'm the only one, but, you know, talking to people like you and some others reminds me that, no, there are other people who think a little more deeply about the, the kind of human enterprise of the hunt. So, no. That's very cool. Are, what what do you have coming up before we go? Like what what can listeners look forward to on your podcast in coming weeks? Sure. Uh, the next guest there'll be uh, one will be dropping tomorrow. So before you uh, before this one's released, that's just me talking about hunting season prep and a little bit, oh. hopefully a little bit more. Uh, as we say, uh, as we spoke about. Uh, I don't really care about gear or all, all yeah. that deeply or anything like that. So maybe uh, a little bit deeper understanding of how I'm preparing for the hunting season. And uh, I have uh, Edgar Castillo is coming on, just recorded with Edgar, and he'll be up next week. So it's a uh, great. He's a he's a fascinating guy, outdoor writer and um, guy. I'm hopefully I'll be hunting with at the beginning of October here. In, uh, oh, cool. Vermont. Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to be in Vermont in the early October at the outdoor writers association of America conference at Jay's peak. All right. So, well, you just first. earned yourself, you just earned yourself a, uh, an invitation cause that's where we're <laughs> meeting. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. We're going to hunt grouse and, uh, Oh, and you know, 
grouse hunting in New England is a uh, is a time honored tradition in literature yes. and in practice. So. Yeah, so, I yeah. went to college in New Hampshire, and I've kicked myself ever since for not uh, grouse hunting when I was there. Um, <laughs> but I can now have a kid in New Hampshire and a kid in Vermont, both okay. in college. So okay, it, the going to going to OWAA uh, at Jay's Peak was a good excuse to get out there and see them. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and if you have a day, I don't I don't I won't pressure you, but if you have a day at the end, we'll we'll get you into the grouse woods out there. That sounds fun. Well, thanks. Thanks, David. I really appreciate your time and and appreciate your podcast and what you're what you're all about. So, thank I'm you, glad, Tony. I uh, love the podcast and I'm honored to be on. Thanks. I'm glad we're, we you and I are singing from the same hymn book. Absolutely. As they say. Absolutely. And we'll be shooting at the same grouse if you're if you're smart. Okay. Cool. That's good. All right. All right thanks. Thanks.